Welcome back to The Wise Man's Page, the daily podcast where we read Patrick Rothfuss's The Wise Man's Fear, page by page. This is page 645. I sat for a long moment as if deeply considering something. When I finally did speak, my voice was hushed and hesitant. Lady, might I write a song for you? I gave her a sheepish smile. Her smile was like the moon through the clouds. She clapped her hands and threw herself onto me with a kittenish delight, peppering me with kisses. Only fear that my lute might be broken kept me from properly enjoying the experience. Valerian pulled away and sat very still. I tried a couple of chord combinations, then stilled my hands and looked, at, looked up at her. I will call it The Lay of Falurian. She blushed a bit and looked at me through lowered eyes, her expression bashful and brazen. All immodest boasting aside, I write a fine song when I set my hand to it, and my skills had recently been sharpened in the mayor's employ. I am not the best, but I am one of the best. Given enough time, a worthy subject, and the proper motivation, I dare say I could write a song nearly as well as Ilian. Nearly. Closing my eyes, I coaxed sweet strains from my lute. My fingers flew, and I captured the music of wind in the branches of rustling leaves. Then I looked to the back of my mind where the mad, chattering part of me had been composing a song to Falurian all this while. I brushed the strings more lightly and began to sing. Flashing moon silver, midnight blue her eyes. The lids were subtle-colored butterflies. Her hair swayed, a dark scythe swinging. Through the trees, with the wind singing, Falurian, O lady fair, blessed be your forest glade. Your breath is light upon the air, your hair is shadow-dappled shade. Falurian grew still as I sang. Toward the end of the chorus, I could hardly tell if she was breathing. A few of the butterflies that had been frightened away by our earlier conflict came dancing back to us. One of them landed on Falurian's hand, brushing its wings once, twice, as if curious why its mistress was so sudden still. I turned my eyes to my lute again and chose notes like raindrops licking the leaves of trees. She danced in dancing shadows candle cast. She held my eyes, my face, my form full fast. That's the end of the page. I'm Jeremy. I'm Jordana. I'm Nick, and I want to talk about butterflies. Oh, okay. Yeah, they're cool. Very pretty. I mean, yeah, yeah. Correct. But I have, I actually have something here. There is some kind of thematic connection or visual connection or even potentially magical connection because she, you know, has like a coterie of butterflies that seem to kind of hang around her and, and like to land on her. Nate Taylor always draws her with like butterfly wings around her eyes. And I think there's been a couple lines in the book that kind of describe her as having like butterfly like even in this song, the lids of her eyes were subtle colored butterflies. So butterflies and Florian kind of a connection there. And then uh, we have another fake creature coming up with a connection to butterflies. Do we not? The Cathay. That's right. The Cathay likes to slice the butterflies, leaving their wings uh, in a, a puddle, a pool of, of dead, masticated. Butterfly goo. Defenestrated, torn apart creatures uh, all around it. And like, you know, tearing the wings off a butterfly is, is likened to killing Felurian, you know, when, when Quoth has her. So it's just interesting that like butterflies seem so central to the two fey entities we encounter here, one of whom 
is described as a butterfly and has butterflies like around them. And the other one who seems to like to lure them in uh, and kill them. I think to me, it's just kind of a thematic through line. Like butterflies are commonly understood to stand in for ideas like delicate beauty and kind of like ephemeral strangeness. And I think that that all of those kind of apply to Fleurian and then to destroy those things seems kind of monstrous and so applies to the the Cathaya. But also like butterflies are kind of connected to the Fae and the supernatural in the popular imaginary. Like fairies are often depicted as having like butterfly features, like butterfly wings, butterfly little like antenna. Like that's a pretty common way to draw a fairy. Butterfly proboscis and compound eyes. Now that's a fairy I'd want to meet. If you want to get... <laughs> Yeah, exactly. In I think it's in Aztec culture, in one of the the you know American sort of pre pre contact uh, civilizations, butterflies are also associated with like death and the god of death. But I think that also kind of ties into the fact like butterflies are so they're so beautiful, but they're also so fragile, and also they can be attracted to like the smell of a rotting corpse sometimes because when things rot, they sometimes smell sweet like a flower. So sometimes you get like. Instead of flies, you get butterflies. Awesome. Mm. Do you remember? I think it was the Disney's Alice in Wonderland. There's like butterflies that are their wings are toast and they have butter on them. And I always wanted to eat them. I thought they looked really good. I don't remember that, but uh, I don't doubt it either. Yeah, that that sounds like a real thing. This is a very like classic trickster character way of getting out of a problem that you couldn't solve with brute force or, or, or power. He is masterfully like manipulating Fullerian by by playing to her ego and her, you know, her kind of self-regard in order to get himself out of a jam. And it really does put me in mind of other wonderful trickster characters like Odysseus who solve problems in this same way. Cool. And he talks about himself in the same way as one might talk about a legendary hero in this very page, uh, which is a bit of an eye roll moment for me, who is famously critical of Quoth in this read, where he goes, I could write a song almost as well as the greatest songwriter who's ever lived. He's being modest. He's not saying he's the best. He's saying he's one of the best. He's like almost <laughs> as good as the best guy. Right. Oh, it's, yeah. So totally modest. reasonable to me. Yeah. Frankly, he's I think he's underselling modest. it a bit. He's a very uh-huh. special boy and you just need to recognize that. Yeah, that's the thing. He is. He is very special. He literally writes a song that gets him out of a jam with like an immortal goddess. So uh, yeah, I think he deserves to talk himself up a little bit. (laughs) I'd be talking myself up a lot more than he does. I'll be honest with you guys. I want this page to be over because I'm reading the next page and it's a really fun one. So I'm uh, I have nothing else to say. I want to want to hurry it along. Before you get to the letter, I do also want to point out that the the lyrics of the song that we're given are kind of good evidence that Quoth is a talented songwriter because the meter of, of the lyrics is it's still a meter and it like it, it flows in a pleasing way, but it is complex. It's not as simple as like an ABAB rhyming scheme. It's not as simple as, you know, a, a simple pentameter or whatever. It's like, it's a little bit more complicated than that. And I am great. Uh, delighted good. by it. Excellent. Using using danced in dancing shadows feels a little awkward to me, but uh, what do I know? No, it's good. It's such good like um, consonants. Dan- she danced in dancing shadows. Candle cast is just rolls off the tongue in a way that I think is extraordinary. I mean, I like the writing. I think Rothfuss is great at writing different kinds of poetry and songs. 
And I'd actually love to hear an album of music, you know, with, with lyrics written by Rothfuss. I think he could write a really interesting musical, actually, if he like, can you imagine stop. if Rothfuss gonna, and Lin-Manuel I'm Miranda say, collaborated said, on a musical? That is my dream come true. Please stop. Incredible. <laughs> I mean, I'm just going to cry at the lack of existence of this. I don't think I'd enjoy that, but I think that's because I don't like musicals like as musicals. a form. I find them annoying for the most part. I wish they would stop singing and tell me the story. What is it like to go through life with no, without experiencing joy, Jeremy? What is it like to just like completely to have that little gland that squirts joy into your brain just be a shriveled little raisin? And it says no donuts, no pie, no musicals. I think I just get joy from different things. Yeah. You're sort of like the Grinch where your heart is too small, except it's your gland that squirts joy into your brain. <laughs> it's your serotonin gland. You said you had a letter? Yeah! Speaking of joy, this letter is from John from Vintus, who writes on The Devil. Okay, I totally thought this letter was going to be from joy when you started it like that. <laughs> yeah, uh, Jordan Hannah, where's my... Li- <laughs> Where is my, no, that was Margaret. Where's my goddamn essay? It's been years. Margaret, to whom you owe an essay, yes. I I don't owe an essay to Joy. No, but you do to Margaret. You owe an essay to each one of our listeners. Margaret is probably not listening anymore seeing as she hasn't written us about the essay. Yeah, because she was furious that she never got her essay. This letter is from John from Vintus, who writes on the devil. And the letter begins thusly. Pax Vobiscum, pagers. That's a very funny Ivanhoe reference, by the way. If you say so, John, I have just enough theological training to make me dangerous. So I will do my very best to address the statements made by Nick and Jeremy point by point. And I believe these statements refer to us trying to remember uh, our, our whatever biblical exposure we, we had in order to talk about the origin of the devil in, uh, in the Bible and whether or not there actually was a devil. On the whole, there is not a lot they actually got totally wrong. Contrary to popular misconception, the function of the devil is not, in fact, to punish anyone. Jeremy is right that the word that we translate into English as Satan comes from the Greek and Hebrew terms, which can mean either adversary or accuser. He seeks to thwart the will of God and tempt as many as he can away from God's path. Hell is not where Satan currently lives, but is his destination at the end of time for the eternal punishment of him and the third of the angels that he led in rebellion. I would actually like to emphasize this point. Hell is not primarily for the purpose of punishing sinners, but rather it is the place of punishment and destruction that is set aside for Satan and his demons. There are actually various views on the nature of hell itself, and rather than try to summarize them, I will heartily recommend the book Erasing Hell by Francis Chan and Preston Sprinkle. Jeremy is right in saying that many of the widely held beliefs about hell come more from Dante and Milton than they do from the Bible itself. However, I would disagree that it is a mere retcon that gives us a single devil character. One of the most important things to keep in mind if you want to actually understand the Bible is that it should be read as a whole story and not just as a collection of disparate texts. Using scripture to interpret scripture is a foundational tenet of biblical interpretation. When you read the Bible as a complete narrative, it actually is quite clear that the opposing figure that is portrayed throughout the scripture is, in fact, Satan. Hell, as we conceive of it, does not indeed show up clearly in the Old Testament. The ancient Jews did not really seem to have a fully formed idea of an eternal afterlife. The word that is commonly rendered as hell throughout the Old Testament most of the time is sheol, or the grave. When you get to the New Testament, it is a little bit more clear, but there are various debated, interpre- there are various debated interpretations. One word that appears commonly throughout the New Testament that we translate as hell is the word Gehenna. 
This was an actual real place that existed at the time outside of Jerusalem, a garbage dump that was regularly set on fire. In the context that it's used throughout the New Testament, it is relatively clear that this is being used as a metaphor or an object lesson for an eternal punishment either after death or at the end of time. That's probably already way more than anybody really wanted to hear about hell on a King Killer related podcast, but I will again wholeheartedly recommend Erasing Hell as a very accessible and rather short book that will answer these questions in greater detail than I can. Peace, signed John from Ventus. I mean, I personally found that all very interesting, especially the the thing you just because I like I've heard the word like Gehenna before, but I didn't realize that it was a reference to a real place and they're kind of using it in like a metaphorical sense, kind of in the same way that if I wanted to tell someone to, to off, I would tell them like, why don't you go hang out in, in, you know, Hamilton, the Mordor of Ontario. Right. <laughs> I was also going to make a Hamilton That's so joke. true. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's because it is universally understood by anyone who lives within like a hundred kilometers of it, that Hamilton uh, looks like an industrial hellscape with like, towers belching flame at all hours of the day and night for our new for our american listeners hamilton is like new jersey to new york city yeah kind of it's like the closest like large city to toronto that isn't just a suburb of toronto it's like you have to cross a bridge to get there it's a whole thing uh we we do love to rip on it an awful lot now as for the subject of the the bible as like a continuous narrative this is where like i'm just like never gonna be a true believer because it's like the the historiography of the Bible, as I understand it, is that it was written over a period of several hundred years by a bunch of different people. And I just don't, don't see how you can read a text like that as like one continuous narrative. So that's, that's, that kind of falls apart for me. Well, it's sort of like how uh, Brian Herbert uh, and Kevin J. Anderson continued the Dune saga. Yes. Uh, famously a series of books that everybody loves all the way through. And uh, always talks about how they just get better and better the more people get involved in writing. Yeah, much like the Bible, there is a complete consensus over how to interpret it and uh, which ones are the foundational texts and that we should uh, we should follow as as canon. It actually does put me in mind of the way people who read comics and people who write comics in like superhero universes like Marvel and DC. There is kind of a a uh, a fr- I'm not going to say like like an argument or like a debate, but it's like there's differences of interpretation on how you should treat the 80 years of publication history. Some people think you should treat it, and the, the writer Grant Morrison is a big proponent of this, that you should treat every story that has happened in 80 years of publication history as canon. Like it all happened, it all counts. Uh, and some people, and like on the very other end of the spectrum, there are people who say like, no, you shouldn't do that because these stories contradict each other. So you should pick out the stories that you think matter that apply to the story that you're telling and you, like, don't really worry about the other stories that happened or or you know, just fully like forget that they existed because they don't fit with the story you're trying to tell. And I think that those are just two different ways with two different aims of interpreting the text as it were uh, certainly I fall towards the second end of that spectrum because I think there's lots of really dreadful uh, stories that are going to pile up in, in a shared universe that's existed for that long. And they just, you just can't treat them all as if they happen because it's nonsense. I hope we're not being too blasphemous or disrespectful by comparing Bible scholarship with Grant Morrison's opinion of X-Men history and Canon. I'm sure that's not the first or the last time I'll ha- I will have blasphemed, but the very term canon to refer to what stories in a fictional universe count or not comes 
Yes, from, yes, it refers to the giant cannon that they use to blow away people who disagree with their interpretation of the Bible. Yeah, they should give that cannon to me. Only I should have that power. And listeners, I will shoot you with my cannon if you disagree with me on tomorrow's page. Um, the wind. 